0: Lord, we just ask your blessing today on your word. Open it up to us, Lord. Help us to meditate and think on these things that they would really work in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we were in the book of Acts, we left Paul at Athens. Verse 15 says, Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So. Silas and Timothy had been left in Berea, probably to help the new believers that had been converted there. Luke is back in Philippi. Um, Let me just check that. Yeah, he left Luke in Philippi. There's a brand new church there, so I'm sure Luke is helping to establish these believers in the faith. Paul left Luke in Philippi. He left... um, Silas and Timothy and Berea, and they're doing the same thing. There was a group of new believers that he's helping to establish. Paul goes on to Athens, and he's actually been run out of town in the last two cities that he was in. So he's a man that's alone. He has no one with him. This is one of the few times that you're going to see Paul alone in a city. He's usually got a team with him. He's hated by a lot of people, especially some Jews. They hate him. They pursue him from city to city. They are hunting him down. They're trying to incite riots and mobs to get rid of him. They, they hate his guts. So Paul's on the run, but instead of laying low and just recouping and licking his wounds, Paul is doing evangelism by himself. He goes to the Jewish synagogue where he always goes, but he's not content just with the synagogue. He also goes to the marketplace and he's preaching there and speaking with all of the Gentiles that are coming through the marketplace. Now before we get too far into our text, I just want to give you some background on the city of Athens, just so you have a picture of of the place that Paul is at. Um, Athens was the home of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno, and these were all the heavy hitters when it came to the philosophers, the Greek philosophers. Athens was the intellectual, the political, the architectural, and the religious center of the world at that time. So it was a very famous city, intellectual. It was the world leader in mathematics, astronomy, science, and philosophy. It was well known, most well known for its philosophy. Uh, Plato and Aristotle have dominated Western thought for the last 2400 years, and their hometown was the city of Athens. And Athens was actually called the University of the World. So it's this great intellectual center. That's why you read here about people, they love to just discuss ideas. You know, anybody who's got a new idea, yeah, let's talk about that, because it was just an intellectual place. Not only that, but it was a political center. The Greeks pioneered the way in political science, They originated the concepts of law, democracy, and parliament. Not only that, it was the architectural center of the world. Um, If we were at my house, I would put up a picture of the Parthenon, the Greek Parthenon. It's it's a wonder of ancient um, architecture. It was built about 400 years before Christ came into the world. And you still see the ruins today, these massive big pillars that surround this Greek structure. Um, Athens was home to some of the most amazing and beautiful buildings in the world there were statues, there were temples so it was an architectural center and it was also a religious center because there was a saying at that day that it was easier to find a god on the main street of Athens than it was to find a person (laughs) there was over 3,000 gods statues and idols and shrines were everywhere, everywhere you looked there was another one So that's what Athens was like. They had these idols that were devoted to stars, to constellations, to powers of the underworld, to men's vices, and to human virtues. I mean, everything you could think of, there was a god for that. If a Greek wanted to get drunk, he turned to the god Dionysius. If he wanted to indulge his lust, he turned to Aphrodite. If he wanted to steal, he looked to the god Hermes. Uh, if you love violence and savagery, he turned to the god Zeus. So there was a god for everything. They had no morals. The Greeks could be very sinful. In fact, they were. <laughs> um, so how could the worshippers of these gods have any morality if their gods themselves had no morality? So Athens was not a godly place. It was a very godless city, but it was a very intellectual and powerful and political and religious center. So Athens was the epitome of what man could achieve by his own brilliance and still be ignorant of the true and living God. That is what it was like. Um, So when Paul came to this particular place, how is he going to preach to the people? How is he going to reach this group of people? We've seen that when he goes to other cities He always starts in the synagogues on the Sabbath day preaching to the Jews. And actually he does some of that here in Athens, but he doesn't limit himself to that activity in Athens. It also tells us in verse 17 that he went to the marketplace every day, not just the Sabbath, and he's reasoning and dialoguing and discussing with all of the people, the intellectuals of this place. There's only two messages in the book of Acts where Paul preaches to a heathen or a gentile group. We have one in Acts chapter 14 and we have this one here in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 14 Paul's addressing the simple heathen and he starts off by telling them that God is good. He gives you your crops and your rainy seasons. So he starts off with something that they can relate to because they were farmers. It was an agrarian culture and society. Now here, he doesn't do that, but he also doesn't start at the Old Testament scriptures like he does when he goes to the synagogue. He doesn't even mention the scripture. He goes and he starts by quoting some of their famous poets. There's a couple of poets of their day that he will actually quote instead of the scriptures. So he, it seems like he's trying to relate to and identify with the people that he's trying to reach, and he's, he's starting where they're at, and he's trying to bring them forward. So, when he's going around the city of Athens, he sees this particular altar, and there's an inscription on the altar that says, to the unknown God. Now, all the other altars had the name of the God on it, but this one says, to the unknown God. It was almost as if, well, we don't want to offend this this God. If there is another one that we don't know about, or we've forgotten to put up an altar to him, let's just put up another one and just put it to the unknown God so that none of these gods get offended by this. And Paul says... So you've got hundreds and hundreds of God, but this God that you don't know anything about, that's the God I want to talk to you about. That's the true and living God that you need to come to know. So that's the basis of his address to the Athenians. And what he does, interestingly, he doesn't really talk much about Jesus in this message. He mentions him at the very end, and almost in passing, where he talks about God being judge, that he's gonna judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He doesn't even give his name. He focuses almost the entirety of this message on the person of God, who is God. And you can see why, because they had no idea who God was. They had thousands of gods, and they were all wrong gods, they were false gods. So he wants to direct their attention to the true God, the God of the Bible. And it makes me wonder if maybe because we are in an age in which there is no absolute truth, everything's relative, people are leaving the church rather than coming to it. Maybe we need to back up further. You couldn't, in earlier generations, you'd take for granted that people understood you when you started talking about God or the Bible. That's not necessarily so anymore. People are agnostics, or they're atheists, or they have relative truth. Your truth is good for you, well, mine's good for me. Everyone's got their own truth. Let's all be happy. <laughs> Maybe we need to back up and just try to help people understand that there is a God, and what's He like? And then lead them from that point to Jesus Christ being the Son of God who came to save us from sin. So Paul's main burden in this message is the foolishness and wickedness of idolatry, We know that because he starts his message in verse 23 by talking about that and he ends his message in verse 29 by addressing idols. And so Paul's, he uses idolatry as bookends for this particular message, the beginning and the end. So let's just take a look at this message and see what we can glean from it. Perhaps the Lord will give us wisdom as we witness to others or we share our faith with other people from this particular message. And I see here eight really great truths about God. Uh, Number one, God is creator. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So very simply, God made the world and all things in the world. The one true God made everything including the heavens and the earth. Now, there were a couple of philosophical ideas running around within the city of Athens at that time. You had the Epicureans, and their their doctrinal statement was something like, uh, the world is just a chance combination of matter and time. It happened by chance. Almost like what we experience today when people talk about the Big Bang Theory, and then you've got Evolution and natural selection and through billions and billions of years just sort of by chance everything evolved to where it is today So very similar Now not only did you have the Epicureans you had the Stoics and their idea was that God is everything and everything is God And this is called pantheism. That was the way they looked at the world God is everything. God is all the, the starry planets and stars and galaxies, and he's this planet, and he's that fish and that dog, and God is everything. So Paul starts off by saying, no, the Epicurean's worldview about God is not right. Neither is the Stoics' view about God. God is the creator. He made the world and all things in it. And we could all also say at this point that the Mormon doctrine about who God is does not square with Paul's vision of God. Because the Mormon vision of God is that God the Father was a man who evolved into Godhood. And they believe that they also can take the same route and they can evolve through good works and getting married in the temple and various things. They can evolve to become a God ruling over their planet just like our particular God is ruling over our planet. So no, that God is the creator of all things. So, How did God create? Well, he created it apart from any pre-existing materials. There wasn't anything when he started. (laughs) He spoke and things came into being. So, his word alone was powerful enough to just bring things into existence. So, it made me think of all the different species of plant life. I'm not really big. Debbie notices plants way more than I do, but those of you who are into plants, and flowers, bushes, and trees, thousands and thousands of different kinds, right? Or I, I like the animal kingdom a lot better. I love watching animal videos, especially sharks and whales and killer whales and porpoises and. But then cheetahs and leopards, I can watch that stuff for a long time. It just, it just. Uh, <laughs> It thrills me actually to see all that God has made and all the different species. And he's so creative, what a creative genius God is when it comes to this stuff. But God made everything, all those various species of animal and plant life. And even the ones that have gone out of existence, you know, they no longer even exist, but don't limit yourself to that, to the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom. Look at the starry heavens. I, I loved one of those, um, YouTube videos that we're singing to where they had that big arch, that stone arch with all the stars behind it. What a glorious view that was. Um, So let me just give you a few facts to help expand your mind on how great God is. The earth rotates once every 24 hours while orbiting the sun every 365 days. So I've orbited the sun now 64 times in my lifetime. (laughs) And it has a surface temperature of 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You think your oven's pretty hot at 350. Well, this is 10,000. The solar system is spinning, flying through space at 134 miles per second, which is 482,400 miles per hour. Our fastest jet planes can go maybe four or 5,000 miles an hour. This one, our, our, uh, the solar system is spinning at 482,000 miles an hour, and we don't even realize it. It's part of a collection of stars called the Milky Way Galaxy, which has perhaps, no one knows the exact number, but they speculate it has about 200 billion stars in this one galaxy. Six billion of those stars have planetary systems like ours. So we're not the only one in the universe that has planets. And the Milky Way is just one of about 200 billion galaxies. So, yeah, I know you can't wrap your mind around this. We can't even wrap around our mind around the fact that there's 200 billion stars in the universe, but that's just one galaxy. There's 200 billion of those! <laughs> um, it takes 4.2 light years to reach the next closest star. So I guess if somebody could devise a spaceship that could go the speed of light, they could take a trip to the next star and probably get burned up, you know. But they could, they could make it in their lifetime. But the next closest... Um, Galaxy to the Milky Way galaxy would take 2.6 million light years. That's the closest one, besides the one we're in. 2.6, so nobody's going to make it, because nobody lives 2.6 million years, right? And that's just the closest galaxy out of 200 billion. So it's just unfathomable. The, the, The greatness and majesty and power and hugeness of God is beyond our comprehension. We can't even comprehend the size of the universe that God has made. And scientists say it's, it keeps expanding. It's not contracting, it's getting bigger. So when you start thinking about that, you get a little bit of an idea of, oh, God is creator. God has such power. God is so big. Bigger than I can comprehend. But secondly, Paul said he's Lord. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth." Now what does it mean that God is Lord of heaven and earth? It means God's the undisputed supreme ruler over everything. He not only made the world, but He rules over the world that He's made. He decides what's going to take place within that world. He determines what's right and wrong within the world that He's made. He calls the shots for this world. He not only makes the universe, but he rules as king over the universe that he has made. And he's answerable and accountable to no one. That's what it means that he's the Lord. And Paul says, thirdly, he's omnipresent. In verse 24, he said, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. So he cannot be limited to this Jewish temple over here. That was one of the mistakes that the Jews made. was They kind of thought, God is localized. He's here in the temple as though that's all, the only place that he was. But of course, that's that's foolish, isn't it? God can't be localized or limited to one space or time. So since God created the universe, he can't be contained by the thing that he created. There was a time when there wasn't that universe and God was still there. So God is outside of the universe and also he dwells within it as well. He fills the universe, but yet he has an existence outside of it. So let alone could he be tempted, or not tempted, but could he be sustained or contained within some temple somewhere? So it's a mistake for us to think of God in terms of space and time. Now, (laughs) there's no other way for us to do it because that's the only way we can think. Because we have been, our whole life experience has been contained within this bubble of space and time. But there is a time before time. In fact, uh, Titus 1.9 talks about something that happened before time began. So there was a time where God existed before he instituted the time that we understand. And there was a time that God existed before all of this space that we think of. So God is not contained within it. He's not limited by those things. Remember when we were in Acts chapter 7 and Stephen was preaching to the Sanhedrin? Stephen says something similar in Acts 7. He said, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hands which made all these things? So, Paul's trying to help them have an elevated view of the God that they know nothing about. He is creator, he's Lord, and he's omnipresent. And then, fourthly, he's self, not self, he's all sufficient. Because he goes on to say in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is all-sufficient. Sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that God needs certain things. And that's why he made people, because he needed people. Some, some preachers have even said that God was lonely and so he needed some companionship, and so that's why he made us, because he wants us, and this is why he wants us to come to him and have fellowship with him, because God wants our fellowship. He actually kind of needs that. Well, God, according to Paul, needs nothing. In fact, God had all the fellowship he could ever want within the Trinity before he ever made people, or before he made angels, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this wonderful love relationship and fellowship and communion with one another, So, according to Paul, God needs nothing. He's the supreme giver. He's not the taker. He says here, he himself gives to all people. See, if if you have no needs, all you do then is give. You don't need people to give you. You're just like an ever-flowing fountain that slakes the thirst of all these people and animals that come to drink from it. God is the fountain of life, the fountain of all good things, and He's always giving. So that's also why salvation can never be of works. If God doesn't need anything from us, then it's not like He's giving salvation in exchange for something that we give to Him. Like if we work hard enough, then God will dole out salvation to us. That would be the result of God having these needs, and us meeting the need, and so then God says, okay, since you met that need, I'll give this to you. Romans 11.35 says, Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Nobody's ever done that. No one's ever given God a gift so that God would repay them for that gift. So that's why salvation is the product of God's overflowing goodness and His grace to us, not of works. So, God's all-sufficient. He has within Himself everything that He will ever need. Number five, he's sovereign. Look at 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So this verse is telling us that God determined some things. It tells us he determined all the nation's appointed times and He determined the boundaries of these nations' habitation. So what that means is that God determined to create all men from one man, Adam. That's what we find here first. He made from one man every nation. Not only that, he determined which nations would come into existence. Right? The Philistines, the Amorites, all of the various nations of the world, the the Americans, the Germans, everybody. God is the one who determined that. Not only that, he determined which nations would come into existence and where those nations would reside, where they would live, what the boundaries of their habitation would be, when they would come into existence and when they would pass out of existence. So he determined the rise and the fall of earthly empires like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the media Persians, and then the Greeks, and then finally the Romans, all of these succeeding empires that came into existence. God was the one that determined that. It didn't happen by chance. It wasn't fate, it wasn't luck. The Bible says that God is the one who determines things like that because he's sovereign over the affairs of man. This declaration of the sovereignty of God by Paul would strike right at the heart of the pride of the Athenians because the Athenians were very proud people. They looked at themselves as being self-made men. They thought they were special and unique, kind of like a a super race. Maybe like the Nazis did in the 1930s where they were like a cut above everybody else on the earth and they were this super race that they needed to protect and to preserve. Well the Athenians were kind of like that. They looked down their noses at the barbarian because the barbarian was illiterate and they saw him as inferior to him. And uh, Paul says, the truth is, you didn't make yourself the way you are. God is the one who determined all of that. So you have no reason to be proud or to be arrogant or to thumb your noses at any other culture or nation. God is the one, if you have any specialty to you, it's because God has given that to you. So Paul is telling these Athenians, God is sovereign over history. Somebody once said, uh, history is his story. (laughs) Which sounds kind of cute, but it's actually true. History is God's story because God is sovereign over the events of history. So that's number five. Number six, he says God is near. In verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." So, Paul there is quoting the the poets Epimenides and Aratus, who had written this line that um, we also are his children. Now, they probably meant it in a different sense than Paul did. When I witness to people, I often hear people say, well, we're all God's children. Almost as if everybody's going to heaven. We're all God's children. And it's true in one sense. It's true in the sense that we are created by God. And so in that sense, we're God's created offspring. But you have to be a redeemed offspring to be saved. And not all people are. So what Paul is getting at here is that God is not only majestic, more than we can comprehend, but he's also accessible. He's near. It's not like he's so far off that he's turned a blind eye to you and you're just going on the rest of your life without any possibility of an encounter with this God who made everything. No, he's, he's not far from each one of us. There's the possibility of an intimate relationship with God, even though he is so incredibly majestic, we can't understand it all. God is knowable. He's near, He's accessible, and He's knowable. You can have a relationship with this God who made the world. So let's just review these for a moment. God is creator, God is Lord, God is omnipresent, God is all-sufficient, God is sovereign, God is near, number seven, God is living. Look at 29. 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Well, I'll just stop there at verse 29. So Paul's point is that God is not like their idols. You ought not to think that God is like your idols. An idol is a dead thing. It's just stone and wood. There's no life to it. It's inert. God is not like that, God is living, God is alive, God can interact with you, God can have a relationship with you, God can answer your prayers, God can do miracles, God can save you, God is different from your idols, all these thousands of idols that you see all around you, Athenians, God is not like that, he's completely different. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's what these Athenians needed. They needed to turn from all these hundreds of idols to the real one. Not the fake dead idols that they worship, but the true and living God. And then finally, number eight, God is judge. Verse 30 says, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring A lot of uh, translations use the word commanding, which is probably a better translation. God is now commanding that all men everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now let's delve into this aspect of God's character a little bit. God is judge. Who will be the judge on this day? Well, if we look at what Jesus said in John 5.22, He said, not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Now, that's really clear, isn't it? Not even the Father judges anyone. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. So the way God is going to judge the world in righteousness is through this man this God-man, his son, Jesus Christ, who's going to sit upon the throne and usher in judgment and determine all men's eternal sentences. So the same one who died for our sins is going to be the one who will judge sin when he comes again. When will Jesus judge? On a fixed day. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. There is a day known to God, in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. Think back when God judged the world previously, remember the day of Noah? There was a fixed day then too. God knew exactly which day he was going to bring the flood and he told Noah to get ready because in a certain number of days he was going to close the door and he was going to bring the flood waters upon the land. Well, there's another flood of judgment coming. This time, not by water, but by fire. And there's a fixed day known to God. That day cannot be changed. It cannot be escaped. It's coming, and nobody will be able to get around that particular day. Who's going to Jesus, who will Jesus judge at that day? He will judge the world the world. I take that to mean everyone who has ever lived in the world, from Adam down to the last person who's alive when Jesus Christ returns. Everybody, you're not, you and I are not going to be able to escape this judgment. Neither will your family or your friends, your neighbors. Nobody, nobody who's ever lived will be absent from this judgment. He's going to judge the entire world in righteousness. How will Jesus judge? In righteousness. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. I take that to mean in strict justice. God will serve out justice on that particular day. When you read about God's judgment in Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15, it tells us that books will be opened. I assume that means books will be opened and read. And I understand that to mean the books that record our life's deeds. Probably more than that, probably our thoughts and motives as well. But your whole life has been recorded in these books. They're going to be opened and read. And men will, all men will be shown from these books that they're sinners before God. And so at that point, the whole world might despair because they've all found to be sinners in God's sight. But then he said, another book will be opened. And there you've got a glimmer of hope left. The first several books show us to be sinners and condemned before God, but there's another book, and it's called the Book of Life. If anyone's name was not found written in the Book of Life, he's cast into the lake of fire. So your only hope is having your name written in this Book of Life. And the book of life is a record of all the names of the followers of the Lamb. Those who embrace Jesus Christ in this life and follow him. Those are the ones who escape this lake of fire, this condemnation. Who will be saved when Jesus judges? Well, verse 30 says, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent because he's going to judge that implies that the way you escape from this judgment to come is by repenting now while you can. If you wait until you've died, you've waited too long. There is one opportunity you have this lifetime of however many years you live on this earth to repent. You must repent if you want to escape the judgment to come. Now the word repent, it has the meaning of to turn. Literally, it means to change your mind. So you could say that repentance is a change of mind that is so profound that it affects your entire life. And when a person repents, they don't just do it with their mind, they also do it with their emotions and their will. Their whole being is involved in repentance. With their will, they choose a different path. With their emotions, they feel remorse over their sin. And with their mind, they agree with God that their sin is evil. So the whole being is involved in this turning from this old thing to something new. And that is the only way you or I can escape the judgment to come. Repentance, of course, includes faith in Jesus Christ. If you have faith, or if you have repentance without faith in Christ, you don't have evangelical repentance. You don't have saving repentance. They're like two sides of the same coin. So that's the person who's going to be saved when Jesus judges. It's the person who has repented in this lifetime. So let's draw this down and find out how Paul's audience responded to this message. And of course, you can read Paul's message in probably one or two minutes, it's so short. And I'm sure he didn't speak for one or two minutes. So this is a distillation of what he said. We don't have everything. We're given the main nuts and bolts of Paul's message. Verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. That's option number one. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. Option number two. Verse 34, But some men joined him and believed. Option number three. There's basically three options whenever the gospel is presented. You can sneer, meaning you can mock the person who's just preached to you. You can try to put him down as though he's an ignoramus or he's stupid. He's an idiot. What does he think? There's no such thing as a resurrection. And so you can mock him, which is some of them did. These people saw themselves as far superior intellectually than Paul. And so they turned down their noses at him and just started to sneer at what he had said. But then there's another group. They said, we'll hear you again next time. So what are they doing? Just putting off that day procrastinating I'm not going to make a decision today I'll hear you again I'll listen again at another occasion and there's lots of people in our churches that do that they come again and again week after week but they never make a committed decision to give their life to Christ to be baptized and to follow Christ so they procrastinate that's a deadly decision because you can do that for the rest of your life and be lost having heard the gospel thousands of times but then there was a third group, some believed, verse 34, among whom was Dionysius. Now this guy was interesting because we're told, if you read history, that he was a very prominent member of the Areopagus Council of Elders. He was a prominent person there in Athens And church tradition, not the Bible, but church tradition says that he became one of the pastors of the believers there in Athens. So he was one of the first fruits of Paul's ministry. And not only that, but there was another woman named Damaris and others with them. So a tiny little church is born from this first preaching of the Apostle Paul. So what can we really learn from Paul's message here? And I'd like to learn from you too if you've got thoughts on this. But one of the things that comes to me is that when you're trying to engage with someone it's best to try to start where they're at. And I I see Paul doing that with these people. He quotes their poets. He doesn't start with Old Testament Scripture because they didn't know anything about that. He started where they were at, and he led them along, step by step, trying to show the beauties and the glory of God to these pagan people. He didn't make Jesus the focus, interestingly. He made God the Father the focus because apparently they weren't quite ready for Jesus yet, so he he says, okay, let me teach you about God. We'll get to Jesus, but let's start with God the Father. But I also see that he was really bold, and he spoke the truth, and he made no apologies for it. In fact, he's pretty dogmatic when, when he proclaims this truth. He's not saying, well, some people think this, and some people think that. He was very direct and bold, and he knew what the truth was, and he wasn't ashamed of it or embarrassed by it. He spoke it boldly. And I think there's that side of Paul's preaching that we should take with us. Be convinced of the truth. Know your Bible well enough so that you're convinced of what God has said, and then you speak boldly to people. So that's the first thing I learned from Paul is he was a true missionary, and this is how he engaged people. That might mean that we need to get to know the people that we're talking to well enough to know where to start. How do we start with this person? Well, let's ask them questions, get to know their background. Who are they? What what spiritual beliefs do they already have? And take them from that point. But then the second thing, and this is just really basic and clear, but what what I take from Paul's message is, we need to make sure we're prepared to face Jesus Christ on Judgment Day. Are we all sure that we're ready to face Jesus Christ on judgment day. You will never be ready until you have repented of sin and become his follower. And what I mean by that is he becomes the very focus of your life from that point on. I was saved about 42 years ago and I can honestly say that There hasn't ever been a day in those 42 years when I didn't think about Jesus Christ. Probably not an hour that I didn't think about him. He's always on my mind. And when you give your life to Christ, he changes you. So you have a new focus. He becomes the center of your world, the center of your universe. And so if there's anybody here who is not yet a Christian, today is the day of salvation. He's commanding all people everywhere to repent. That includes you. He's, command, he's not suggesting that you do this. He's commanding that you do this. So for you not to do this, you are violating God's command and sinning against Him. So if you're not yet a Christian, turn from that old life today and repentance and embrace Jesus Christ. Lord, would you have your way today and everyone here, No matter where we're at, what stage of life, where we're at spiritually, Lord, you know all things. Use your word, Lord, to do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.